There is definitely a measure of performance art to being a professional with a client. Mm-hmm. Like you kind of feel like you have to swing around some merit. Yeah. And like show them that you know what you're doing, even if it's like, oh, I know I can take care of that later when you're not looking. And I can take care of it faster if you're not looking. But you definitely want to show them that you can do what they can't do. Yeah. There needs to be something very, very clear that you understand something that they don't. Welcome to the Upward Acts podcast, where we give you the tools, insights, and techniques to help you deliberately enter an upward spiral of well-being. We're in season two, and we're going to be interviewing lots of epic creators, and coaches, and our therapists. And today we've got someone real, real special on the podcast. Uh, my next guest who you just heard from is Alex Bossa. I met him way back in 2007 while we were navigating the complicated space of middle school science lab write-ups. Alex is a San Francisco-based professional creative working in the advertising industry as a copywriter. He went to the Academy of Art University in San Francisco, graduating with a BFA in advertising, and uh, he does regular freelance work as a photographer, a videographer, graphic designer, and just all-around writer. Um, he's also a musician that plays both drums and guitar. And fun fact, Alex is one of my oldest and closest friends. Um, we talk about a bunch of epic stuff today. We go around personal work versus work for clients, which is a big thing for a lot of people, just making creative decisions in general. We talk about the importance of maintaining a passion project if you're a creative professional and literally creating ourselves through our art and intentionally creating our identity through our art. There's so much good stuff in here. So if any of that sounds interesting to you, then stick around. So I've had a bunch of different people on this podcast season so far, but all of them have been uh, mental health or creativity professionals on the like helping service side of things. So therapists and coaches and facilitators. And so one of the reasons I wanted to have you on the episode is just because I know you're not necessarily in like the service side of things. You're more on the actual like artist side of things, like the type of people that art therapists and creativity coaches are trying to serve. And I felt like you would have a really interesting perspective and take on a lot of the same topics and just kind of round out a lot of the more theory-based stuff we're talking about with like the actual life (laughs) of an artist rather than like an imagined artist or like a conglomerate of clients, but you're like the source (laughs) of what we're talking about in a lot of ways. No pressure. Not meet. No pressure at all. <laughs> so I guess we could start like with that. Do you actually identify as an artist? I know for a lot of people, that's like a big barrier to entry right away is if they might be doing creative things, but all of a sudden they're just like, I'm not actually an artist though, you know, in that way. So where do you kind of stand just identity wise? Definitely. I, I, I hear you on the whole identifying as a thing kind of makes you become the thing you know, certain measure of speaking. Um, anyway, to answer your question, yes, I totally identify as an artist. <laughs> All right, and you count. You're one yeah. of us. <laughs> Send it. <back. laughs> See you later, everybody. You're um, How long do you think you've uh, felt like an artist? It's actually a really funny question. Um, so most people don't believe this story when I tell them, but um, I knew I was going to be a professional creative when I was like in the fourth grade. Dang. And it's sort of really interesting in a roundabout way because um, when I was in the fourth grade, uh, I saw an ad for a college about um, uh, like an art college. Um, And I promised I would never advertise for anybody who wasn't paying me. So I don't feel like I should name the college because it's a private for-profit university. Um, But I ended up majoring in advertising So it's kind of funny that I saw an ad for an art school, went to school for advertising, and now I work professionally in advertising. Coming full circle. It's so... It's it's, a little meta. Like the ad wasn't for the school. The ad was for making ads. (laughs) Yeah, it was was really really trippy. So, um, but that's what I do now. In the creative space, I work as a a copywriter in the advertising industry. Um, And when I was in the fourth grade, you know, 
pe- people, who, who knows what you're going to do in college when you're in the fourth grade? You barely think about high school. You barely think about middle school if you're in that sort of. I don't know, you know what I'm doing after school. You know what I'm doing <laughs> after school, exactly. <laughs> but um, I, I definitely knew that I was going to be going to art school. Um, and of course, over the course of, you know, my educational career in the K through 12 system in America, um, you had a couple of like, well, maybe I don't want to do that. Maybe I want to, you know, study sociology or something like that. But it always, it always came back when, by the time I was leaving high school, I was like, yeah, I'm, I'm going to art school. Um, and I'm, I'm chips all in full send creative. Nice. I didn't know that you had that interest in art school so early on. That's nuts. <laughs> It's wild, right? Um, I, it, it's, it's one of those stories that has stuck with me for a long time. And I, I only tell people if I feel like they won't laugh me out of the room. Well, now you've told the entire internet. So. Oh, sh- well, great. <laughs> <laughs> to laugh you out of the cyberspace. Uh, so it sounds like you kind of knew you wanted to go to art school for a long time, but art school has so many different factions and sections, whether you're going into f- fine art or graphic design or like sculpting like there's just so many different directions you can go with that did you know you wanted to go in that advertising too or was it kind of like once you got there you kind of sussed it out with different intro classes like how did you end up picking basically that's a good point um something that kind of i don't consider it uh, isn't intuitive to people um because art school is very much it's like saying college right like what did you study like what type of art did you study um, and I originally went to the school that I went to with a focus in art direction for advertising um, was the specific major intent. Um, and art direction encompasses uh, a lot of graphic design, Photoshop, Illustrator, InDesign, all within the um, Adobe Creative Suite. Um, a lot of photography, uh, some video editing classes. Um, you sort of, in when you major as an art director, um, you kind of become a jack of many trades and master of the ones you want to become a master of. Um, and uh, the reason I went with that field of study um, as a you know senior in high school, why I chose that one, was because I looked up prolific careers in the art space. I was like, I, I think I literally Googled one day, I was like, you know, uh, what art jobs make a lot of money because you know the whole <laughs> naturally our entire life is driven by the dollar symbol right um and uh art That's director an important question when you're like choosing a major in college though like to have a realistic expectation at least so you're not Absolutely. like i'm gonna be a millionaire and you go into like <laughs> like a non-profit space or something right yeah, not not only that but um also in um the way that uh you know you're going to a private for-profit college so you kind of have to also go in with the thought like, oh shit, they're going to, they're going to be like charging me tooth and nail. Yeah. Can so I ever pay them back? <laughs> Can I ever pay them back? It's the worst. It's the worst thing ever. Yeah. I feel that one. So you went from art directing and kind of bouncing around all these different fields. And then was that bouncing what led you to advertising? Like you started to see that space and you were like, maybe I don't want to bounce out of that. Yeah. So um, art direction for advertising um, was my intended major until my second to last year at the school I went to. Um, and it was, it was kind of just, a um, matter of luck that I encountered the director of copywriting at the school through, um, this thing called the creative bootcamp. And, um, I was, put in this group of five people. Um, and the whole idea in this creative bootcamp was that you would be uh, given a, a mock client and a mock project, basically. And what you had to do is create in three days uh, a campaign, develop a pitch, um, and then you pitch it to a panel of judges. And then the panel of judges would select like who's winning, you know, like who, who was the best pitch, who had the best ideas, et cetera, et cetera. And in that room of like, I don't know, 50 some odd, it's probably, it probably more than that because it was us and then another school in the creative bootcamp. Um, we got paired into groups of five and we, we all had like assigned 
um, major focuses. So you're either an art director, a copywriter, or a strategist. Um, I mean, that's the way the buckets kind of worked when you're a student. There's a whole bunch of nuance in the actual professional industry, naturally. But those are kind of the things that we're, we're like taught from. Mm -hmm. Art director, copywriter, strategist. Um, anyway, I was put into a group, and this is like a criticism of the whole uh, creative bootcamp at large. Um, they didn't really bucket you appropriately in these groups. Because uh, in my group of five, we had three art directors and then two strategists. We did not have a single copywriter. What? Yeah, it was weird because they just literally drew our names from like lots from a hat, which seems a lot less efficient than, you know, seeing what everybody's field of study might have been and then yeah. putting us together appropriately, whatever. Um, but such being the case, I... Uh, I played, I played copywriter because I was like, well, we have three art directors and two strategists. I don't know yeah, jack so about it. so unnecessary. Yeah, it's, 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 it's ridiculous. <clears throat> so I, I didn't know jack about strategy. Um, art direction, we already had two other competent art directors, but we did not have a dedicated writer. And um, I should probably explain what copywriting is um, in like specificity because it's kind of this nebulous idea. Um, copywriting in, in the, the short uh, like 30 second pitch copywriting is literally writing the ad. It's like writing the, the copy, writing the copy. Yeah. It's not writing with an R I G H T it's W R I T E <laughs> copyright. Right. Um, but anyway, uh, so in, in that group of five, we, uh, I played copywriter and we built our deck. We had our idea. Um, strategists came to do with some, you know, cool tactics that we could possibly have for the creative bootcamp to put into our presentation. And then when it came time for uh, like our first round of review, um, the director of copywriting was on the team and he goes, um, yeah, so this is a, uh, this is pretty cool. Uh, who question, who wrote, who wrote this? Um, who was your copywriter? And they were like, Oh, we don't have a copywriter, but he's like, well, who wrote these slides? Someone wrote it. <laughs> somebody wrote it. Yeah. It was like, Oh, I was like, Oh, it was me. How's it going, Alex? Um, I'm an art director. And he goes, no, 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 no. You're a copywriter. <laughs> I was like, no, no. I mean, like, I've been taking art direction classes for four no, no, years. No, 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 no. <laughs> yeah, literally. He goes, no, 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 no. You're a writer. And I'm like, all right. So, like, the next, the very next semester, I had a class with him. Um, at his advice, he's like, listen, you should take my copy for radio class. See how you like it. We'll talk. Um, I think you'll have much better, much better job prospects if you um, mark yourself as a, as a writer when you graduate. I'm like, sure. And I've, I've been writing for as long as I can remember, you know, like as long as I, I knew how to hold a pencil and, and, and say words and put thoughts to paper. Um, and writing was never really like a, I never really considered that writing could be a, like a professional avenue because mm -hmm. it always seemed like a hobby. Like it was a fun thing that I knew I could do competently and as a very like unconscious skill for myself. It's like where the best careers come from. Right. I, I wholly agree. Um, so that, that, that is kind of my evolution into being like, maybe I wanted to be a designer um, and then deciding or having it kind of not only decided for me, but having someone encourage me to pursue something that I was potentially a little bit better at. Cause like, I'm not a, I'm a pretty, pretty decent designer since I studied it. Um, but definitely my strength is in my ability to write copy. And that professor kind of saw that at that boot camp. Yeah, he, he saw it at cool. the boot Yeah, it's yeah. great. Those pivot moments happen so much where like just the right comment from the right person who really sees you in the right way and then everything changes after that. So definitely. Nice. And I wonder I'm, if he I'm, knows I'm, that you've been like a copywriter <laughs> this whole time. Oh yeah, I mean, I still talk to him to this day. Wow, that's so cool. <laughs> yeah, um, real nice guy, same to Mark. Um, but he, uh, uh, he definitely pushed me in the right direction. And I'm actually really thankful that I studied design, you know, before I decided to become a copywriter, because I have the vocabulary to talk to designers. And if need be, I can like jump into a design file and like, like, no, this is maybe a better idea. Something like that. Yeah. Yeah. That's so cool. So I've been really interested in the intersections between different areas of art and creativity lately. 
um, especially visual arts and music because I've been a musician forever, but lately I've been getting way deeper into visual arts, partly because of you. You've helped me out with getting access to Adobe and giving me a few lessons, but I'm also really interested in where there isn't any overlap. I feel like it's maybe a little naive to say like all creativity is exactly the same, right? Because with the parallels, once I start looking at them, they're kind of everywhere. And so I'm still really interested in those, but now I'm also interested in where they don't parallel. And I think a big area that I'm interested in that you're kind of touched on so far is the difference between art for personal expression and art for commercial, like client serving professional work, you know? Oh, and oh, I, I feel like there's there's so so much overlap, but especially in my career and in music, and I'm sure in advertising, it's got to be a really big thing. And I'm wondering, just before we get into like the philosophical differences, again, like you're a real person and not like a theoretician, right? Uh-huh. So like for for you specifically, not in like the industry or whatever, like we can get into that. But have you felt there's a difference when you're working? for a client versus doing something off the books for your personal work? Or have you found a place where you can merge the two where your personal expressions happen to get you paid? You know, One, 100%. Um, it's actually funny that you mentioned that because um, I kind of collect quotes and like sayings and, and all these kind of like fun parable type things. Yeah. And like having them in a mental catalog and one of the ones that stuck with me for the longest time. And I learned it while I was in art school is sometimes you make art and sometimes you make rent. You've said that to me. <laughs> I, it is I the, think I've internalized that a little bit as well. <laughs> like, thanks to you. Yeah. It's, it's, it is the, the perfect way to, to think about being a professional creative in, in the, in, in the space where it's like, literally sometimes you have to hang up your, hang up your hat and be like, you know what? I'm, this is not the hill I want to die on. Like there, are, there are better battles to fight in like my professional life. Like if if somebody, if the client wants, you know, the copy written this way, and they're like really adamant about it, and I hate it, you know what? If they're gonna, they're gonna, at the end of the day, I gotta, I gotta pay the bills. So you know, you have to make these little concessions definitely in your life. But where you don't have to do that is in in your own personal projects. And the only client that you have to serve is yourself. And, and those, those are, I would say, definitely the things you take for granted when you're an art student. And they tell you this all the time when you're in art school, they say, this is the most creative you'll ever get to be um, within these parameters. And it's like, you don't, you don't really fully understand that until you have to serve clients. Um, and uh, some, of my, some of my, even though I've been out of school for several years now, um, some of my favorite work from when I was a student is still in my portfolio because it's fun. It was fun. Yeah, and when just had, the boundaries were way further away. You're more open. Definitely. And there, there is, there is a certain merit to having, being able to like separate your, your client brain and your like non-client brain. So for you, there's like a really strong delineation between the two. Like before you sit down, you're almost intentional. Like this is, for me or this is for a client entirely yeah you have to you definitely have to think in in a, in a, in a sort of service manner as opposed to like you know like, oh this right. is something pretty i want to create and f- full of flowers so i know one really interesting way to think about being creative that's been really helpful for me and helping others understand like as a creativity coach is that creativity is essentially a series of decisions um I kind of began to think about this after um, <clears throat> reading a book called On Becoming an Artist um, by Ellen Langer, who is one of my favorite mindfulness psychologists. But essentially, she explains that a sense of creative confidence kind of stems from the fact that you have to constantly make these decisions. And if you're creatively confident, you can make the decisions easily. And if you're not, it's really hard to make the decisions or you'll question those decisions. And it comes down to some of the most basic things like what should I paint on <laughs> or what instrument should I start with? And then it gets, you know, finer and finer grains, like what note should come next? What color should come next? How big should this particular element be? And you're just deciding over and over and over again, especially when it comes to finishing. It's like, well, when is it done? You just have to 
decide when it's done. And I think for me, at least a really big difference between commercial work and personal work is like the onus of the decision where sometimes I get to make the decision, but other times you kind of have to, or I kind of have to defer to the client. Like, what do you think? Right. Or kind of confirming the decision is I decided to do this. Are you okay <laughs> with that? Which is a thing I would never do in my personal work. Has Is that one way that you kind of make that delineation between the two when you decide like this is for me or this is for the client? Do you ever think like I'm the sole decision maker or there's another decision maker in the room or is that completely outside of how you think of it? That's an interesting thought actually. Um, <laughs> I don't know if I've ever... Uh, put deliberate thought to it that way before. Well, here we are. Welcome to the uh, Upward Axe podcast. <laughs> welcome to the Upward Axe podcast. Thank you. It's it's a delight to be here. Um, it's far more introspective um, than you, you build it to be. Uh, I love it. Um, <laughs> to answer your question, uh, is there a decision maker in the room? What was that phrase you used? Creative what? Creative? Confidence. Creative confidence. Creative self-efficacy if you want to be a big nerd like me. <laughs> creative self-efficacy. God, that is a gorgeous, gorgeous phrase there. Uh, Especially it's since so I, important to me. Dude. It's like the crux of all of the work I've been doing for the last I mean, especially, years. Especially since I, I, since I work in, 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 in pharma currently, um, I'm, the word efficacy just is... is right, so it just hits, it's hits different. It's just it's like, <laughs> like, pow, oh my God. Oh, creative self-efficacy. So efficacious. <laughs> um... Yeah. For those who don't know, efficacy is just how much something can work, right? So in pharma, I'm sure like a drug that's efficacious is one that actually cures what it's trying to cure, Correct. right? So self-efficacy is just when you think you can do things. So creative self-efficacy is when you think you can be creative, like you believe you are creative. And the simpler way to say it is just creative confidence. Yeah, it's funny that you mentioned that because um, when I first onboarded onto the agency that I work at right now, I had zero experience in pharma. Um, in fact, uh, I had I had like worked at three different ad agencies. At the, oh, I'm sorry, I worked at two different ad agencies at the time, and then an engineering firm um, as a designer. Um, and going into a uh, a pharma agency blind having no idea like a how to interpret a medical journal b then having to interpret medical journals and then c having to fact check your own ads against the very medical journals that you didn't know how to read um it was it was like really steep learning curve that i climbed with like a blindfold and handcuffs on <laughs> um and i remember there being a very distinct moment i i couldn't tell you when the date was but i remember doing some work and then like telling a group copy supervisor how to do something based on um, like a, a fact check that I had been doing. And I was like, Oh my God, I'm good at this. <laughs> it, was, it was, it was incredible. Um, having a, a measure of confidence, uh, creative confidence is very important. Um, when you're working as a like a professional in the space, because mm -hmm. yeah, there are going to be some times where you have to tell the client like, no, you know, your idea. I mean, we appreciate your idea, but this idea might work See, a little bit better. That's exactly where I think the the friction lies that I'm still trying to explore, which is why I was interested in how much um, you've given thought to this because I think it sounds like you've done a lot more client service with your creativity than I have in a lot of ways. Um, and so I, I feel like for me, the friction arises when there is a lot of creative confidence. So if I'm feeling really creatively confident in a particular thing, for example, you know, I've been working at a recording studio as an audio engineer. So I'll make a decision, like we were saying, like this word needs to be moved and flattened you're sharp so I got to bring the note down and move it to the left because you're also rushing or like you're late or something yeah and I'll confidently make that decision like this makes it better if the client is like no I actually liked it the way it sounded I want it really far off and out of tune 
right? Like if I'm super confident, I feel like it'll be a little bit more difficult for me to be like, yeah, you're right. I'll just put it back. <laughs> right. But if I'm not confident, it'll be easier for me to be like, yeah, do you want it here? And they're like, no, I want it over there. And I'm like, okay, great. So in, in that sense, your creative, creative confidence is really vital for making those decisions. But I wonder if it makes it a little bit more complicated when you're doing client interacting work. Does that make sense? It's very interesting. Yeah, um, I agree. And in in the advertising space, at least we have uh, we have a kind of saying when we're doing like pitch decks. Um, and a, you know, a, a pitch is literally when you you go to a client, and you're like, "Hey, here are a couple of ideas. Please buy one." Um, and uh, some of the one of the mantras that we have is because you always want to come to the table with multiple ideas. Mm-hmm. Um, so they pick one, and if you feel really strongly about one idea. You quote, it. well, no, you, 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 you give them one to hate. What? Unquote. Yeah. So sometimes we'll deliberately put like, for lack of a better way to express it, shitty ideas <laughs> into a presentation, wow. knowing that they're shitty to show the client like, Hey, this is how it doesn't work. Here's how it should work. That and sounds then, exactly like, I, I can't remember the name for it in sales, like door in the face technique or one of those things, foot in the door technique, where you start off like, do you want to donate a thousand dollars? And then they're like, why mm-hmm. would I do that? That sounds absurd. And then like a little later, you're like, how about you just donate 50 bucks? Bring right? it and then it's down. like compared to a thousand, like that sounds like a great idea. Is that kind of a similar thing? It's like, you know, I want you to try option B or pay for option B. But like oh, yeah. you show them option A first and they're like, I would never do that. It sounds ridiculous. So like, well, how about option B? They are totally analogous. Wow. Yeah. It's, it, and it, that's, that's something that um, I've found. I've done a lot um, in, in the creative space too, um, where uh, like I have freelance clients that I work with and, you know, they'll ask for something. Um, and then I'll be like, you know what? Intuitively, I know that'll look terrible, but I'll do it anyway. I'll make it anyway. And then on top of that, you give yourself a little bit extra work. You execute it like the way you envision it to be proper. And I, I would say most of the time, they look at the, the thing they originally requested and they're like, oh, wow, you're right. That was terrible. Okay, yeah. See, that makes sense where, because I was asking about the friction where I as a creative made this decision. You as the client might say, I don't like this decision, but mm-hmm. showing them the alternative, like, well, if you don't, choose my decision. This is what you get. Yeah. I can see how that make it easier. Cause then in that case, even if they don't go with what you wanted as the creative, it's a little bit more, I feel like for me, it might be easier to accept where it's like, okay, you really did see both. Yeah. (laughs) And like gave it some thought. 100%. And yeah, you don't have to do that when you're by yourself. Like there's no reason for you to ever give yourself a shitty option (laughs) first. Right. Right. No. You're like, I already know what it is that I want. Why would I waste my time doing that? Yeah. I think, you know what? I think the only place I've ever encountered something similar is in um, photography. Um, and the advent of digital photography over like film photography is that, you know, quantity will get you quality. If you just take enough pictures, you're bound to have at least one good one somewhere. And I found this a lot in um, a lot of, uh, junior photographers too, who I've like talked to or mentored in one capacity or another. Um, and they'll do this thing when they're in the edit and they're sorting through all their files and they'll come across two, three, I don't know, a couple of very, very similar shots. And then since they're only reporting to themselves, they're like, man, I like both of these shots. I don't know which one I like more. I'll just give them both. Just send both of them to the client. And I'm like, at at that point, I feel like you need to make a decision to get yeah get one of those out of there. Because if, you, if you're delivering two of the same thing, they're like, what am I paying you for to take the same picture over and over and over again? That's a good you point. Change it in some way, shape, or form to make it look at least a little bit distinguishedly different. different. Um, because if you give them two of the same thing, you're kind of asking them to do the work for you, to like pick, pick a better shot. You never want to give, you never want to let your client pick the better shot. Um, but also, uh, your client will never see the other shot if you don't give it to them. So they have nothing to compare it to. So don't, don't give them something to hate in that moment. Just kind of like make it, you come across as more professional if you're like 
look, trust me, this mm. one is good. I know mm. because I have yeah. the right taste and professional skills to tell. Right. And then additionally, on top of that, it's like, if you don't like give them two of the same thing, then it's like, well, you've made the decision for them and they'll never see the other yeah. piece of garbage. I feel like you're still getting at some more of the differences between personal creativity and client serving Creativity mm -hmm. is another thing I'm learning at the recording studio I'm working at is how to come across as extra professional, which is, you know, something you don't really have to think about when you're in a studio alone, <laughs> just doing your own thing where, you know, I'll be re recording a recording artist and usually mixing and vocal processing and stuff is done after the recording has been gotten and the engineer will just do it alone. Um, but I'm learning that doing a little bit of the engineering while the client is still there, even though we're just there to record, just kind of tweaking the vocals a little bit and adding some extra effects and moving things around just makes you look way more professional, right? Just like for the client, right? Even if it's just you're making little tweaks and you know you can do it later, doing it while the client is watching you just is like, whoa, they're actually an engineer, right? Like you doing some of the photography skills or even just showing up with equipment, Right. Yeah. And like making little tweaks, it's just like, whoa, they know what they're doing. And it kind of breeds extra trust and authority, which yeah, is just not important when you're working on something alone. But it seems so vital to having a good relationship with a client. Oh, my God. It's it's funny, again, um, that you you say these things out loud that I know I intuitively like I, I do just instinctively. And yeah. I'm sure like identifying them is really important. It, it, there is definitely a measure of performance art to being a professional with a client. Mm -hmm. Like you kind of feel like you have to swing around some merit yeah. and like show them that you know what you're doing. Even if it's like, Oh, I know I can take care of that later when you're not looking and I can take care of it faster if you're not looking, but you definitely want to show them that you can do what they can't do. Yeah. There needs to be something very, very clear that you understand something that they don't. Yeah. Otherwise you're just useless. Yeah, right. Like, why would I have you here if I could do it? Right. And that, that is, yeah, there is, there's totally, there's totally performance in like necessary to being a client serving creative. Right. So nuts. Yeah. So see, these, these are the things that I'm starting to think about where it's really, there's got to be some differences between like, I'm just going to paint, you know, in my home versus I've been hired to do a mural out of bank or something you know like i i have a client that i'm serving versus i'm working on this for myself i think it's really important both because you know i'm a musician that writes my own stuff and i'm working as an audio engineer where i'm just serving other people as well as a creativity coach you know and anyone else that's listening to this podcast working with creatives i think helping the creative understand the difference and then helping them work through those differences could be really valuable, especially because it's super hard for me to imagine. I guess not super hard, but I feel like hopefully there are fewer professional creatives that are only doing one, right? Like only doing client-facing creativity and never have their own personal thing. I actually don't know the stats for that off the top of my head. Do you have a sense of that? I would hope like 99% of professional creatives are also doing their own thing. But I imagine if that were the case, a lot of creativity coaches would be out of work. Yeah. <laughs> so like, um, what is it from in your kind of field and your perspective, having a balance between the two or is one prioritized more than the other in general or what? Um, definitely. If you ask me to name a professional creative that doesn't have like a creative side project, just like a passion project that they're working on, I could name you absolutely zero. There Thank is, God. Yeah. I've never, I've never met That's somebody really who good. wasn't. And yeah. that makes sense just because I, you know, again, coming from the psychology side of creativity, it's creative behavior is so often linked with personality in so many ways, right. And being really open to experience and being open to have uncertainty mm. and like split your attention into multiple projects is a lot of times a personality thing that makes you a better creative. So it makes Definitely. sense that like the people who would get into professional creative spaces are the people who can and are interested in balancing <laughs> multiple projects, especially if they're personally interesting. Yeah. Um, speaking of being interesting, um, I have actually, uh, in my experience, whenever I go into an interview um, in, in the advertising field, at least, every time I've talked to people in um, agency interviews, mm 
a total of like, I don't know, every single time they have come across like my, my, like my passion project work, like my stuff that's not professional stuff. They always spend way more time on that stuff than they do on any of my like produced work, like stuff that's been done for clients. Cause they're just like, okay, yeah. And I I think it's because um, if you're in the industry, it's like generally pretty much accepted that you can probably do the work. Um, if, if, if somebody's hired you before and then you stay there, like they look at your work history and like, okay, yeah, he, he did, he did some work. He can probably do it. But seeing like stuff that no one asked you to do mm-hmm. shows that you have like, you have, you have passion, you have create, you have, you have creativity, you have a drive, you have a drive to do cool things. Um, okay. This is actually getting me to another thing that I wonder is really different between the two that mm. I have only kind of thought of. And this podcast is, I don't know if you've picked up on this yet, but one way for me to take little nuggets of things that I, I want to think about yeah. and then have someone else to bounce it off of that has a whole <laughs> other perspective. Yeah, that's, it's, it's cool to watch, I bet. I did this like with every episode. I'm like, I want to think about this and I just like tee it up. <laughs> so I want to do the same, <laughs> same thing for you right now. Yeah, yeah, let's I um. I've heard this idea that when you are creating, especially in the context of like you were just describing, creating a personal project that you're just interested in for its own sake. um, You know, a lot of people talk about that as creating meaning, but I've also heard it discussed as like, you are creating yourself. Like you are reflecting yourself and you're manifesting elements of you into a medium. Like when every time you paint, you're painting you or every time you're making a song, like the song is about you one way or another. And so the reason I I bring that up is because it sounded like when you're saying in in these interviews, like, yeah, we've seen the work that you're doing for other clients. You can do the technical skills, but we want to know who you are. And the fact that you have a whole portfolio of personal art, it's basically like you explaining to them who you are, which sounds exactly what an interview like a job interview is for have you given given that any thought yet that's that's quite profound actually crazy um yeah that's a really really cool thought um it reminds me of um a story uh about pablo picasso um perhaps you've heard it um but uh it goes uh, pablo picasso he's like drawing on napkin in a bar um, and then some other patron comes up to him and he's like, Hey, you're, you're that painter. You're Pablo Picasso, aren't you? Picasso looks at the guy and goes, yeah, it's me. And then the patron goes, he looks at the napkin and then he says, Hey, how much, how much can I, can I buy that off of you? Can I, can I buy that, that illustration on your napkin, your bar napkin? Pablo Picasso goes without flinching. He's like, sure. $400,000. And then the patron goes, what are you talking about? That took you like five minutes to draw. You're really going to charge me that crazy amount of money? And then Pablo says, without flinching again, no, that took me 40 years to draw. It's pretty perfect. Yeah. So yeah, the culmination of all of your experiences being put into every single piece of passionate creativity that you do is, is definitely something I don't know if I've, I've ever thought about like putting to words, but when you did it just there, I was like, man, that's profound. That's great. Oh, well, it, it, it's, it's um, ratcheting off of what we were talking about earlier. Um, I remember uh, there was, uh, there was a, a student after I had graduated, um, there was a student who was all a senior and he wanted to get my, get my ideas. He was like, he was like aspiring copywriters. Like he wanted to get my ideas on his portfolio. Um, so he, he pulled me in for an information interview or I, he asked me if he could come into the agency where I was working at the time and said, Hey, can you look at my book? I'm like, yeah, sure, man. You want to come to my office and, you know, we'll, 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 we'll book a meeting room and we'll talk about, you know, stuff and what it's like to be a, a writer. So like we sit down, he like opens up his laptop. He starts showing me stuff. I can see all of his student work. And for the most part, like, it looks like student work and it's like, all right, cool. Yeah, sure. Great, great, great. And then like buried, like, it had to have been like three or four submenus down was just were these illustrations he'd done. They were charcoal and graphite illustrations. And I was like, 
dude, <laughs> what the hell are these? And we spent like the rest of the time just like going through all of his really gorgeous illustrations. Um, and I was like, why aren't, bro, you need to, you need to put these like at the front of your portfolio because absolutely nobody in the industry cares about your, your professional work. We, ad, advertising people, we look at ads all day. We don't want to see more ads. We don't want to see like, especially student ads. Like we get it. You studied advertising. Great. Show me who you are. Show me, show me what, what you like to do, what you, what you feel like you're good at. Show me stuff that, you know, that you spend hours doing and it feels like you spent seconds doing it where, where time at the same time elongates, but also feels like way too short. Like show me that stuff and show me who you are. That's, that's a fantastic, something yeah. fantastic way to think about it. I think it. the way you described that earlier, you were asking how I got this job as an audio engineer. Yeah. And it's basically what you just said. Like, I think, um, you know, I'm still learning a lot of the kind of studio techniques and the software and, you know, how the compressor is routed and like that kind of technical stuff. Um, but my personal music production, I think, is the reason I got the job. Like the people who own the studio really liked the type of music I was making and the direction I was going and the passion that I had for the production side, like the sound design and really getting everything to pop and just that kind of attention to detail in my personal music. And I think that was all demonstrative enough for them to be like, yeah, okay, you know, you can learn all the technical stuff in the studio, but if that's the kind of ear you have and the focus you have when you're in your free time, that's the type of person we want as an engineer here. And so I think oh, yeah. it's kind of that same thing. Like they weren't like, show me all the songs that you've, you know, mixed or recorded for other clients. They were like, show me your music. Right. And so interesting. Nice. Yeah, so the reason I was saying I haven't thought about it too much is because I kind of got to that point where I was like, dang, that's crazy. When you create, you're making you. <laughs> I was like, that's nuts. But I haven't really done a lot of thinking in terms of using that idea intentionally as a way of creating more of yourself and growing your sense of self mm. in a direction that you want, right? Knowing like when I make this, I'm making a part of me. And um, another thing that I'm kind of reading about and I showed you that creative systems map that I'm working on a piece right, that right, I haven't right. added to it yet that I think might have to be in text because that map has already got a lot of elements in it <laughs> is um, yeah. there's a difference between spontaneous creativity and deliberate creativity. Have you heard this before? Uh, I can intuit the idea, but elaborate. Yeah, for so me. there's kind of like a four by four grid. So your creativity could either be deliberate or spontaneous and it could be emotional or cognitive. I kind of, am less interested in the emotional versus cognitive because they blend together so much that separating those two, I think is often kind of unnecessary, but the difference between spontaneous and deliberate creativity is really interesting to me because kind of mixing those two up can lead to some problems. Um, and I'm wondering if the self creation part, if that is deliberate or spontaneous, like, can I, before I make something decide I want to be, like this or I want to think of myself like this and by creating that medium I manifest that basically literally deliberately create a part of myself or is it spontaneous where it's like this is just who I am and I'm bringing who I am to this artistic medium right now and whatever comes out is going to be that reflection you know I, I haven't really figured out if it's a mixture of the two or one of the other? Like, is it a oh, mirror man. or is it a ball of clay? Oh man, that's a good, it's like the, the one example that I'm, I'm like trying to like chew on in my head. And I don't know if this is something we can solve in you know an hour long podcast. We'll figure sure. it out. <laughs> we'll figure it out. It's fine. It's a simple answer. No, um, I'm thinking about uh, improv improvisation. Um, you know, you, you and me have known each other for years and we've been jamming together for years. Um, and a lot of the music that we've created together, like historically has been improvisational, but every single time that we do something improvisational, it's usually based on, you know, a small structure of four chord progression naturally. And then you kind of make everything up within the parameters of, you know, a decided, a decided 
thing, a collectively decided thing. Like we're playing in the, the, the key of C, I'll play in C major. I won't play in like F sharp major because that would be, that'd be weird and atonal and stuff. Um, but in the moment, I, I don't know if it's, is it deliberate or is it spontaneous if I'm, if I'm following a scale? So in that case, I would definitely say it's, it's both, which is almost always the, the answer when you're trying to think <laughs> of two things. I've actually discussed this somewhat in, um, with some of my coaching clients. I haven't mm. thought of it in this particular sense of like we're creating ourselves, but just the creative process in general. I often describe it as mm. creating the structure and then letting the gaps fill in on their own. And I think that's a good way to describe the improvisational nature that you just described is like, we create the structure of like, we're going to play at this tempo. Yeah. We're going to use these instruments. <laughs> we're going to be in this time signature and we deliberately set the structure. But then once we have that structure in place, we just take off and let it fill up on its own and just kind of have the spontaneity fill in the details. Interesting. So I've always thought of that as more of on, on the macro scale for creativity is like the structure is like, I'm going to work on something every week or, you know, I'm going to prepare myself by getting the right medium, getting my tools together. I'm going to take classes. Like there's a bunch of deliberate stuff you can do. Yeah. And then the spontaneous elements just show up, right? Like you can deliberately get a bunch of pencils and, and colors and then, just start and then you'll spontaneously make something you didn't plan, for example. So like, that's more of like in the bigger picture, but yeah, I guess I haven't thought of it specifically in identity development. Like, I guess it, it could be both where you're like, I want to be, <laughs> I don't even know. Like I want to be more close to people. All right. I just, an example off the top of my head, like I want to be the type of person that easily gets very close to people. Yeah. Because I'm not right now. Mm. And then you start making art. Does that art just show you that you're still not close to people? Or does the art that reflects oh, you being more close to people make you more close to people? Oh, man. Do you see where, where, where my uncertainty lies? This might just be something I continue to noodle on for a while. Yeah, there's got to be like a measure of interpretation <laughs> there too that, you know, it, it'll never feel like there's a definite answer. Yeah, then we're in the right territory. <laughs> that's perfect. That's, that's where we're, we're always at, right? Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, that's, a, I don't know, something I definitely want to start to think about more because I've been so interested in intentional identity development for a long time. I don't even know mm. if I've gotten to talk to you about it before because mm. so many people think that your identity is completely spontaneous that you are just whatever you end up being. But the more I've studied how identity works and development works, more generally, this is kind of outside the scope of creativity. Um, but you can decide like deliberately that you want to be a type of person or you want your kind of even elements of your personality or your behavior or your demeanor or mm. just your general outlook. <laughs> like you could just decide like, I want to be more like, this and then become that and identify as it so it's almost kind of coming full circle to our conversation when we first began i said are you an artist right yeah. if someone is not an artist or let me put it this way if someone does not identify as an artist there's things they can do to identify as an artist yeah and that's identity development you don't have to just wait like one day i might end up as an artist you could be like i want to be an artist and then it deliberately create that identity, you know? That reminds me of um, something, I believe it was Brene Brown um, in one of her Netflix specials, or it might have been her TED talk. And it might not have been Brene Brown, to be honest with you. I might be misattributing <laughs> it. Somebody said this somewhere, but they said that um, they're less of a fan of the idea of fake it until you make it. And they're more of a fan of fake it until you become it. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that is, there's like a, a bit of profundity in that too, because I remember there was a period in time where I didn't identify as a guitarist specifically. I identified as, oh yeah, I can play guitar. Like the measure of, of difference between I can play guitar and, oh, I'm a guitarist. Yeah. It, it, it was definitely one of those like 
like tier type things where once I start identifying specifically as a guitarist, I noticed my skill level get exponentially better and better and better and better. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense because you can own it more and commit to it more when you feel like that's what you are. Definitely. Yeah, that resonates with me a lot. I feel like I'm actually in the process of that with piano because I've always just identified as being a drummer for so long. And then, you know, making electronic music, that's just kind of where I was at as a music Mm. producer for a long time. And piano is involved in music production, but I'd never really considered myself a pianist, especially when I think pianist for me, for whatever reason, contains much much more virtuosity than like guitar player or I don't know, like other instruments, right? Like you could be, I just, I feel like when I think of guitar player or drummer or something like that, it's easy for me to think of someone who sucks. But when I think, when I think pianist, I just think of like virtuosos for some reason. So I never really thought of myself as a pianist, but like you're saying, fake it until you become it. I love that. I've never heard that, but I've been practicing piano every day for like a little over a year now. And I teach piano lessons. And a while ago I was like, am I a pianist? Dude, like, like, I mean, you know, uh, flattery aside, um, I did definitely notice like there was the first time I heard you play, you know, some basic chords, put them to, to a track. And then I remember very recently hearing, I don't remember which song was on because the titles of your songs change. So pretty, pretty, pretty often and quickly. Um, and they're also hard to remember because <laughs> <laughs> they're, 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 they're very you. Yeah. Um, but I remember hearing like some really complicated chords that you were playing and not only like comp- complex chords, but there were also some really, like really musically interesting runs. And I was like, holy, holy shit. Where did that come from? Like, who, <laughs> who that's is that Cordell. That's totally Cordell. I was like, my God, this guy, this guy, pianos. Pianos. <laughs> pianos, he pianos so hard. Yeah, exactly. I was like, whoa, dude, that's blowing my freaking mind over here. Yeah. So I totally sympathize with, you know, the people who don't feel like they're quote unquote artists or have a hard time diving into it. Cause I feel that same friction of like, I like stepping into the role of pianist sounds very bizarre to me. Or yeah. even um, I've recently started to consider myself a composer, which I never really thought of. I don't know. Again, a composer, I think like Hans Zimmer or like someone who like, you know, composes for a full orchestra, but like a few weeks ago, things. yeah, exactly. But a few weeks ago, I, I really wanted to work on music, but I really wanted to go to the park. <laughs> and I was like, uh, well, why not both? And so I just grabbed a bunch of sheet music and went to the park and I had no instruments. I had no laptop. I, all I had was a pencil and a bunch of staff paper. And I just sat in a park and I like wrote like pages of music. And I went back and put all of that into Ableton. And I took up and I started to realize like, well, that was a composer ass move. <laughs> like that's that was what a composer does. Hella composer. Dude. So I was like, Wow. And I realized I could take that composer hat off. And so when I went back into the studio, all I did was put everything that I wrote into Ableton. And I tried really hard, almost like what you were saying before, like taking the hat and switching it to Mm. being like, you know, I'm making it for myself or I'm making it for a client. I almost thought of the composer element of me as the client and I put on my sound designer hat. And so I took just the instrumentation, um, not even the instrumentation, just the notes and the timing and everything, put it in Ableton and then just sound designed the hell out of it. Like just made the coolest, craziest sounds I could think of and didn't worry about writing or arranging at all. And it ended up sounding so cool. And I was like, dang, I think I might be a composer. And it was like the first time I'd ever really thought of myself in that sense, you know, same with being a pianist. So it is, it feels weird. Have you heard of this word? Um, it's, uh, I've only heard it in Hebrew. I'm probably going to mess up the pronunciation, but it's Yura. Have you heard that before? Basically, it's oh. a feeling you get when you are doing something that makes you feel more expansive than you were before. And it's like exhilarating, but scary. Like fear is a part of Yura. And it's when you're doing something that makes you like I was saying, like you feel more spacious and more full, like you're capable of more than you were before and you just feel larger and it's a scary feeling to like recognize and take responsibility over the fact that you can 
do more. And it's scary, but it also feels good because you're growing in a direction that you want to grow. And I, I feel like stepping into these new artistic identities can often be really scary or like kind of nervous, but it's exactly what's going to take us to that next level in a lot of ways. Cause like you were saying, like as soon as you step into that identity, you just go so much further. Cause you're like, well, that's who I am. That's what I'm doing. That's what I'm going to do. There's not like, well, I'm just an amateur kind of holding you back. Like, well, I don't have to be great. Cause you know, I'm not actually a pianist or I'm not actually a composer. Dang. Have you ever felt that kind of that friction or that, that sense of fear stepping into a new identity or even just, I don't know, stepping into anything creative oh, that's new? Hell yeah. Um, yes, I have felt that. Um, and I, while you were describing it, I was trying to like put a finger on specifically when, and I think it was the moment that I started to like present myself as a professional creative, as opposed to just somebody who's learning creativity. Um, and I remember the first time I did a big photography event um, and it was, um, uh, it was terrifying, <laughs> but also very gratifying. Like I was like, Oh man, you know, I know what I'm doing. I know how to set up these cameras. I know how to, I know how to time my shots. I know what to anticipate. Um, but geez, man, the pressure of possibly screwing this up when they're paying me so much money. It, it was, it was like, ah, I'm so, yeah. <laughs> I'm so scared to deliver like the final product. Um, and in fact, actually, um, this happened uh, a couple weeks ago. Um, I actually recorded my first, um, uh, a, a, like a service. It was a, I mean, full disclosure, it was, a, it was a funeral service for a, a former coworker of mine. Um, and his father had passed away and I'd never done anything like that before. Um, where, you know, uh, the most of the work that I'd done as a photographer had been very celebratory, been very, you know, very happy. And like you could walk around. And- yeah. You walk around, you chit chat with people, you party. Um, and, and they, they, the mantra of a photographer is that like um, the best kind of photographer is kind of the photographer that you don't know is there. Cause they get, they get like a lot of the really good candid fun shots and stuff, but the entire, like the entire atmosphere is different in the case of a funeral service. Um, and something that happened was before I started recording the service, I had two cameras, um, one close camera and then one far camera just to get like two different angles. I cut two back and forth. Um, I forgot to, to format my SD cards before, yeah, before the, the service started. It was like an hour and a half long service. And both of my SD cards across both cameras were like halfway full, maybe. It was, I, yeah, and I remember because um, my the, the close-up camera um, records to uh, 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 like a, a lot higher resolution, um, so it was encoding like a lot faster using more SD card space, um, and I got an alert said cards full, we're done recording, and I was like, oh, oh no, <laughs> what am I gonna do? And I remember I had to think really rapidly on my feet, and I was. It was it was scary um, because, you know, I, I knew I felt I felt I had the confidence to go into this being like, yeah, I could I could do this for you, man. It's no big deal. But then, like, you know, the stakes were really high. Yeah. So what I what I ended up doing was like I ended up on the fly, like like knowing that I had one camera that was about to run out of memory. I like deleted a bunch of like files that I didn't need really quickly, put the cam- mounted the camera back on the tripod, started recording again. I did that intermittently until I got a radio call from my, my assistant. Um, and she said, Hey, uh, this camera just said it's full. And I'm like, I knew that was going to happen. So I ran over there, started doing the same process, knowing that I had another camera recording that was about to be full again. Oh my God. Yeah. Bouncing back and forth. So just bouncing back and forth. And then eventually what I ended up having to do was like, I took one camera. I was like, okay, I know I'm going to run out of space. What can I do? Knowing that I had an audio like a, a single take audio. Um, like it was my zoom H five recorder just sitting right in front of the podium where they were speaking. I was like, okay, as long as I have a single unbroken take, I can record B roll and cut over it. Yeah. So I took, I took the camera and I was like, you just took photos. I took, I took, a, I took actually video of like flowers of, of people in the audience. Fortunately, I mean, silver linings of yeah. COVID world, they had masks on so that you couldn't see their, 
you know, they weren't talking or anything like that. So I, I took B-roll of them. I took B-roll of like photos that were just around to create some sort of ambiance. And in the edit process, I like covered all the gaps with Dang. that stuff. So having to think on the fly like that was... that. See, that to me feels like the difference between like an amateur or student and a professional. Is oh, yeah. The student or the amateur is like, yeah, I could do it. But then when these problems arise, they're like, you got to go to your boss. Be like, well, I don't know what's happening. But yeah. <laughs> when you're like a problem arises and you're like the one and having the ability to figure it out and still have a really good product then like that just screams professional <laughs> to oh, me. Oh man, it was, it, but to, to your point, it was freaking scary. Yeah. Like I knew I could do it. I knew I had, I, I had the ability to, if I needed to, to troubleshoot yeah. on the spot. And see, I think we were talking about like, how do you create these identities, especially when stepping into them feels really scary. And mm -hmm. I found that one of the best ways to do that is to have evidence, right? To have proof where you don't have to convince yourself like, yeah, I, I'm a pianist just because I, I say I am. Or, like, I'm a photographer just because I say I am. It's like, no, do you do what a photographer does, right? Yeah. And so for you to be like, well, you know, I have gotten paid for my photography. I've run uh, events where I'm the photographer. I've had my own assistant, right? I've problem solved and delivered photography to paying clients. Like you are now <laughs> a photographer even if yeah. you don't really feel like when you're becoming one that's why um i've been really trying to instill that in some of my music students even though they're really young because you know as we were saying like saying i'm a pianist or saying even i'm a composer can feel really scary when you've got these ideas built up that a pianist is like a virtuoso yeah. so i've i've begun telling all my music students like when they're working on something like for example i have a piano student they're working on piano i'm like you are a pianist like you're practicing multiple times a week you've got a piano instructor like you're gonna have a performance soon like you're a beginner pianist right you're like really young but you're definitely a pianist and i have all my music students write their own music as well right and they're just like writing like you know a couple bars and it's all eighth notes and quarter notes or something um but then i'm like you're a composer like you just composed that bit of music like that no one wrote that for you you didn't find that in a book like it didn't exist and then you sat down with a pencil and a piano and you wrote music. That's just what a composer does. And I, I'm trying to kind of instill that in them really early on so that when they want to step into these identities, they don't be like, but I'm not actually a composer. It's like, well, I've written music and yeah. I play the instrument. It, it, that's such a cool thought that there is utility behind identity. Oh yeah. We never really thought about that before. No. Yeah, it's it's crazy because especially in um like this new wave of mindfulness and meditation is getting really big. People are getting these really weird relationships with ego where they want to destroy it or like eliminate it just because really advanced stages of development involve transcending the self, right? But <laughs> there's so much in between like being born and like forming yourself as a child or teenager and then transcending yourself People want to skip all those in-between steps, right? Or they'll like demonize, like, oh, it's just ego stuff. Like you gotta stop or like squash the ego or like leave the ego at the door, like that kind of stuff. Um, but yeah, if you look at it as a tool and like, as you were saying, like as something that has utility and something that you can intentionally craft and build, I think it is like an insanely powerful tool. Like that's why it evolved is because it's just so helpful in surviving and functioning in a social society. So I'm all for ego transcendence as well. But I think before that, like one of my favorite quotes, I, I think it was Alan Watts. It could be Ram Dass. I think it was Ram Dass actually. He said, um, you have to become somebody before you can be nobody. Wow. Yeah. And essentially he just means like, you have to become authentic and secure before you can be comfortable enough to step outside of yourself. If you're insecure and you're full of hate and, and malice and fear, right? And your ego is just defending itself at all costs. It's really hard to step outside of it because it's just clinging and scared. But if it's comfortable and safe and it, it authentically feels like what it wants to be, like if you identify as something that you feel comfortable and connected to one, it's great. <laughs> it just feels good. And two, <laughs> when you start to get to a point where you're 
moving towards awakening or questioning the nature of consciousness or like wondering what is beyond, you know, the career and the material relationships. It's just so much easier to find those answers and to slide into that space when you're already really comfortable with who you are. Yeah. So, uh, are you an artist? <laughs> totally. I'm even more an artist now than I am at the beginning of this conversation. If you end this podcast and you don't think you're an artist, you need to talk to one of us immediately. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Give me, check, look me up on the internet. Just Google Alex boss. I'm like the first search because yeah. my SEO was on point. On point. I was actually about to give you the opportunity to plug anything. Oh. Like, is, is there anything that you're working on right now or any way that people can see or connect with some of your work? I mean, yeah, actually, I'm, I've been intermittently recording with Hot Cocoa, like a bunch. Oh, yeah? So, yeah, I've been, I've been sending him some saucy guitar tracks, and then he's been making magic with them. Um, other than that, I mean, you can, I have a YouTube channel where I make a bunch of jokes from time to time. <laughs> it's, a little bit, it's been a little bit inactive in the chaos of, you know, everything, 2020. Um, but alexbasta.com is where you can find me if you like. Um, and I got a lot of cool art going on there. A lot of, a lot of boring work stuff, but skip all of the ads and go see the cool stuff. <laughs> skip ads. <laughs> ads is literally a section on my website called skip ads. Dang. That's yeah. brilliant. Nice. Mm-hmm. And uh, is there anything, I mean, I usually say this because as I was saying at the top, usually the people on this show have been therapists and coaches, but is there anything that you think people can do right now, starting today that might be able to push them deeper into their creativity? Hmm. Be okay with being unsure. I think that I feel personally like that is the one thing that inhibits creatives from like expanding their horizons and getting good at other stuff. Like they get in the case of the, like the Adobe three um, Adobe Photoshop, Adobe Illustrator and Adobe InDesign, all three are, have very similar functions, but they're all very different purpose. Like they, they all serve very different purposes. Um, you can do pretty much anything that the other three can do in either software, but they're like optimized differently. Um, but if you never, if you never branch out from the one that you feel most comfortable with, um, and you never venture into like a place of uncertainty, you never just do a bunch of exploration into different concepts that you might not be familiar with. Um, it it gets really easy to stagnate. So being okay with being unsure about a thing, and then being like, oh, you know what, I'm I'm gonna suck at this at first. But eventually I won't. What did they say? The master has failed more times than the student has tried. Dang, I love that. Yeah, that's one of my favorite, one of my favorite sayings too. Um, and uh, yeah, I guess that's my advice. So just do that. Yeah, just suck a lot of, suck at a lot of things and eventually we'd be good at some things. Maybe I'll use that at the top. <laughs> 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 Welcome to the Upward X podcast. <laughs> All right. Suck at some stuff, just, just be bad at things. Awesome. Well, thanks very much for joining me, dude. It was a pleasure, as always. I'd love to come and do it again. I'll love. Alex Bossa, everybody. Peace.